name Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated and children, you are dismissed as you're finding your seat. Please say hello to the people around you. Welcome them to our service. Welcome. Well, it is so good to worship the Lord together. Amen. 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 Well, let us uh, let us bow our heads in prayer as we begin this service, as we look at cultivating a heart of gratitude. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for the name of Jesus, for the power of the name of Jesus, the truth of the gospel the freedom that salvation brings from Satan, sin, and death. I pray, Father, that you will be with us this morning. Holy Spirit, fall fresh upon us with your presence. May we, as we open up the Word of God, be transformed, not just informed. In the holy and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Young people, before iPads, before Netflix, before HDMI, even, there were DVD players. DVD players. I remember when I was 17, the big gift to get was a DVD player. And I remember my uh, begging my parents to get me a DVD player. I had just bought a non-HD television, which was basically all you can buy. I had just got that on my own dime. I was working, and I wanted to, to have a DVD player, so that was my gift. And, you know, you can go to the store, and you'll find a DVD player for, like, $15 these days. This was, like, a $75 DVD player, and it was this big. You guys have no idea. <laughs> the, those of you who are sitting there saying, I, man, I remember when there was no TV. I cannot understand that. But I remember eagerly waiting for my present and thinking this is what I was waiting for and present after present after present was not my DVD player. My dad said that I have trouble waiting for things when I was younger. Now I understand because I have my own children and I see this in them as well. I had a problem with delayed gratification, my dad would say. And I was just, as I was waiting for the DVD player and opening socks and sweaters and shirts and, and underwear. I'm 17 years old. I'll just keep using the same underwear I have. Why do I get more? And more. So I'm getting grumpier and grumpier and grumpier. I mean, you've probably seen your kids do this, where, like, finally after the seventh present, they're like, I just want that one thing. And I remember then opening it up, and I was not as excited as I should have been. Had it been the first present, I would have been really excited. But it wasn't. My grumpiness and my entitlement, my lack of gratitude made this present that I had built up in my mind something that just became very little to me. And I'm sure you've experienced that in your own life, 
where you were waiting for something and waiting for something. And when it came, because you were grumpy by that time, it didn't mean as much. And you weren't as thankful as you should have been for that item. We live in an entitled world. Especially in our culture where we can go get a DVD player for $15. Some places around the world, they're not that cheap. Some places around the world, they still don't have television. But we have so many things in our lives and we feel we deserve them. But that does not help us have an attitude of gratitude. It does not cultivate a heart of gratitude because entitlement generates ungrateful hearts. Entitlement generates ungrateful hearts. When we walk in entitlement, we will never be satisfied. We will never feel grateful because we'll feel as we receive something that we deserve it. Well, of course I got that gift because I deserved it, right? Or, you know, we say, I worked so hard for this thing that once we get it, the gratitude is very low. But we're called to be people of thankfulness. Now, I know you're probably thinking, all right, Thanksgiving, this cheesy sermon about Thanksgiving, right? But it gives us a good excuse to talk about gratitude because we live in an entitled world. We live in an entitled society. And as we wash ourselves in that entitlement over and over again, we lack gratitude. But I believe as we look at the scriptures this morning, that will answer this question. How do we cultivate a heart of gratitude in an entitled culture? How do we cultivate a heart of gratitude in an entitled culture? I'm going to read first from Psalm chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. So if you have your Bible, please open there with me, or you can read it on the screen. If you're online, it'll show up on your screen as well, but you can also open your Bible. Psalm chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. This is a psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. Now we're going to recircle back to this passage but we're going to look at 1 Corinthians as well. And you might think, how do these two go together? How do they help us cultivate a heart of gratitude in an entitled world? I'm glad you asked because that's what I'm going to be talking about today. The first thing that we can see in, in order to cultivate a heart of gratitude in an entitled culture is this. A shift in our perspective makes gratitude possible. A shift in our perspective makes gratitude possible. And Paul helps us understand this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. He says to the Corinthians, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Why do you boast as if you did not receive it? 
This is not a cherry-picked passage, as you might think that often with topics there are things that we can cherry-pick and shape and make them say something that they do not say. But in this passage, you have to recognize the cultural context of the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth actually mirrors this society and the church in America. And that's why after our series in the seven churches of Revelation, we'll look at 1 Corinthians. Because I think it's a cultural assessment of where we ourselves are. The church in Corinth was a very entitled church. They boasted about lots of different things. They had factions where this side was, uh, this I follow Apollos, and this side I follow Paul. This person discipled me. These were Jews. These were Gentiles. Whatever faction they could do, imagine that we separated ourselves out in quarters as to who we thought was best in our, in our sanctuary right now. That's exactly what they were doing. There was this sense of, I'm better because of this. I have this spiritual gift, so I'm more special. I am a disciple of Paul, so I am more special. I have an enlightened mind. I don't have any problem drinking uh, or eating food from these different idols. I don't have an issue with that. And those people that do, I need to look down on them. This was the attitude of all of the Corinthians in the church And Paul was trying to consistently pull them out of their entitlement, consistently talking to them about the fallacy of their pride. And so here he asks a couple of questions, and he does this throughout the passage, or the book of 1 Corinthians, rather. He asks very specific, pointed questions to point out what's wrong with them and to challenge them to think differently, to have a different perspective. They were not grateful for what God had given them. So he asked them some questions. And what they were missing is that God is a God of grace. Not a God who is going to appease you and your feelings. Give you what you feel you deserve. Because we actually deserve nothing. If you understand the theological reality of who we are as humans, what we have done in our sinful nature, we deserve nothing. No matter how many hours you might read your Bible or serve or do all these different things, because we are naturally inclined to sin, we don't deserve anything. For the wages of sin is actually death. You see, this is an understanding we have lost in our culture. Many times we feel like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm naturally a good person. I'm naturally a, a kind person. No, not really. Because if you were to think about it in your mind, you might encourage people, but you might be like, oh, that person's really annoying, but I'm just going to say something nice so I look good. But if we really think in our mind, we are not deserving of anything. Here's a huge key for us in order to shift our perspective what Paul was trying to get the Corinthians to see the perspective he was trying to change them into is this seeing everything good as a gift changes our view on life seeing everything good as a gift changes our view on life 
They were acting as if they deserved everything that was coming their way. And Paul challenges them and says, why do you think you've done anything? Haven't you received gifts? Why do you boast as if you didn't receive them? What's going on in your mind? If you pause and stop and shift your perspective, you will see that the things that you have in your life are gifts. You've received them. That's the grace of God. You did nothing to deserve them. Nothing at all. God is good. Amen? And the gifts we have in life are good because He has given them to us. Out of His goodness, out of His grace, out of His mercy, out of His kindness, out of His love, He has given these things to us. But we toil for so long under this sense of entitlement where we might become puffed up at the things that we've received and say, see, my hard work has paid off. God is raining down the blessings upon me. Or we get grumpy and say, you know, God, I've been working pretty hard and you've given me pretty much nothing. You know, where's all the blessings? You just look around. You'll see the blessings. As uh, an older lady at my previous church, Patty, she was always smiling and always happy. And one day I asked her, I said, you know, I've never seen you grumpy. And she said, if you grumpy, you ain't grateful. And I thought, that is some really deep wisdom. How often in our lives do we find ourselves grumpy? How often? I spend a lot of time with people. And I spend a lot of time with Christians. And I find that Christians are pretty grumpy people. That should be convicting. We're not grateful for what we have. We look at all of the bad things and just focus on those things but we miss all of the good gifts. An older gentleman always told me when I asked him how he was doing, he said, my feet hit the ground this morning. Praise Jesus. Like, my feet hit the ground too. I didn't thank Jesus for that. I should. I woke up in this morning. I'm alive this morning. I have my voice to be able to speak this morning. I have intelligence. might bring some judgment. I say, well, how can you be depressed after that? How can you want to die after that, Elijah? Yeah, some crazy woman said she's going to kill you. So what? Why are you so depressed? Why are you so frustrated? Why do you want to die? But let's not judge him too harshly. This man had just done a three-year clip of absolute dependence on the Lord. For three years, he was sitting, waiting for God to feed him by the ravens or waiting for God to fill the oil and the flour with a widow. A widow's son died, and he, by the power of God, raised the son from the dead. I mean, amazing, incredible things that God was doing in Elijah's life, this struggle, this pain, this agony for three years. It, we can sometimes just pass by those three years and say, oh, it was really simple. You know, he had faith and trust. He did. 
But he was stretched thin. And he had just come to a place where the power of God was flowing. And he saw it. And he was exhausted. He was tired. Have you ever felt just at the end of your energy rope? I know as parents, we probably feel that a lot. When we wake up, we feel like we didn't get any rest because our kids were crying at night or tapping us on the face to wake us up and tell us that they're sick and they're not feeling very well. And you're like, I can't help you. And we just, just have no rest. And maybe you're feeling exhausted and stretched. And here we see that God was giving him rest. He ran away into the wilderness was alone and he kept sleeping. Have you ever just wanted to take a nap in the middle of the day? Raise your hand if you've ever felt that way. All right? Here's Elijah taking a nap in the middle of the day. And God does not yell at him for napping or resting. He taps him on the shoulder and says, hey, wake up, eat, and then go back to bed. Wouldn't that be great if we took a nap in the afternoon and our kids came and instead of waking us up to tell us something about themselves, that they said, hey, here's some coffee. Here's some toast. Wouldn't that be phenomenal? That's what God was doing. And Elijah was resting in that. Chuck Swindoll has a very good point. He says, there's an old Greek saying, you will break the bow if you keep it always bent. In other words, if you're living under constant, relentless stress, you'll finally break under the pressure. You must give yourself some time for rest and refreshment. Now, I'm just as guilty as everyone else in this room. Rest sometimes sounds like torture, like I just have to sit there and do nothing. Boring, right? But God, he has designed us for rest. Because a depleted body gives way to increased depression. We need rest to remain strong. A depleted body gives way to deeper depression. Have you ever noticed that? Whenever you're tired, you're a little bit more cranky. Have you ever realized when you're tired and you've not taken a break or you've not taken any time off work in a long time and you just get really mad or you get really sad and you're like, what's wrong with me? It's because you need to rest. It's almost like God knew what he was doing when he put the Sabbath into our week. Right? Almost like he knew what he was doing. Because he did. He designed us. God knows us. He knows that we need rest. But too often, we do not rest. We do not take that rest. We might feel guilty that I'm resting too much. We might have this sense of, oh, I'm not doing enough. I've been there. But the Lord is telling me and telling you, rest. For you to be able to hear his voice, you need to rest. The third pathway is the pathway of emptiness. We need to empty our plate. Empty your plate of pride and self-pity. Empty your plate. Empty my plate of pride and self-pity. 1 Kings 19, 9-10 says, There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life 
to take it away. Now, here he is in his moment of depression and depletion. He's not yet fully rested or recovered, even though God has given him some lambas bread. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you'll understand that this food that he ate was going to sustain him for 40 days. And he's talking with the Lord, and he comes to a place where God's like, why are you here? And we see that in his depression and frustration, his real issue is he feels alone. He feels like he's the only one. He's the only one that understands, and no one else could ever understand where he's at. He believed two lies. He believed lie number one, that he was alone. And he believed lie number two, that no one could ever understand his pain or frustration. He came to a place of pride and self-pity. Now, when we are down and depressed and sad and frustrated, we can come to those same places. And God in this moment, we'll see in a second, doesn't sit there and say, stop whining, boy. He steps into where he's at. But we need to empty our plate of this self-pity and of this pride. Wiersbe says, in this reply, Elijah reveals both pride and self-pity, and in using the pronoun they, he exaggerates the size of the opposition. The I only I am left refrain makes it look as though he was indispensable to God's work when actually no servant of God is indispensable. He was eating from a plate of pride and self-pity. He just continually kept feeding his inner voice this pride and self-pity. He began this conversation with himself even in 18. While he's on the mountaintop in, verse, in chapter 18, verse 22, he's feeding himself this lie and spitting it out to the people around him. He walked in this pride and this self-pity and God was going to gently walk alongside him. When we are in our depression and darkness, We cannot feed on self-pity and pride. We must empty ourselves of those things and say, here's where I'm really at. Help me. Here's what I really feel. Help me. We look at the Psalms and it's full of depressing words. It's full of anger at God. But in the end, the psalmist always comes to a place of, but even so, blessed be the name of the Lord saying, I know that you're going to get me through it. It's sad, it's frustrating, I'm angry, I'm lonely, but I know that you're going to get me through it. When we can get our eyes off ourselves and off our situations and see the largeness of the Lord, we can begin to hear His voice in the darkness. We can be so blinded by our circumstances, we can be so enamored with our own lies about self-pity and pride that we can miss the largeness the giant nature of our God who is bigger than all circumstances bigger than all our depression bigger than all of our loneliness bigger than anything that could ever come against us he is bigger the fourth pathway is the pathway of silence shut off the inner and outer noise that seeks to hinder your hearing Shut off the inner and outer noise that seeks to hinder your hearing. 1 Kings chapter 19, 11 through 13 says, And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. 
And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah had so much inner noise. Have you ever been there where you just can't stop focusing and thinking on the issues and the problems at hand, where you're super stressed and you might even wake up and you think about your to-do list and you feel overwhelmed. You think about the issues with your family and you feel overwhelmed. You look at your own situation and your own circumstances and you feel overwhelmed. This is an inner voice that just won't shut up. And here God is taking time with Elijah to get him to quiet his inner voice. And then he has all of this noise around him. All of these things that happen, there's wind. And if you look at Scripture, you know, you might think, well, God is in the wind because the Holy Spirit is described as wind. You might say, well, he's in the earthquake because God is shaking things up and God just did a crazy, ridiculous, awesome thing by shaking the ground in the past. And here we see fire. God just came down as fire. Elijah saw it 40 days ago. This fire consumed the water and the stone and the dust and the, and the sacrifice. And Moses had a moment of fire with God. And we see in Acts that the Holy Spirit is also looked at as fire. And so we'd anticipate that all this noise that's going around, God must be in some of that. There must be something that God is doing with all of this noise. But God was in a low whisper. God was not in those things. And it purposely says that God was not in it. I think that God was doing several things at the same time because God is God. He could do a lot of things in one moment. Where you and I can do one thing in one moment, God can do several I think he was showing with Elijah, hey, you know what? I am the God of all power. I am the God that is stronger than all of your circumstances. I am the God that can silence your inner voice, proving to you that you're not alone while he did all of those things. But I think he was also showing Elijah and me and you that there's a lot of outer noise that's in our lives that we just need to silence. You know, if you were to go in the woods and you're all by yourself and you hear birds chirping, no matter where you are generally in America, eventually in about an hour or two, no matter how remote you are, you will hear the, an airplane go over you. We don't live in a world that allows silence even when we are in the middle of nowhere because we are filled with so much noise. Social media, the media, people's conversations all the time about things that don't matter, things that just stir us up and frustrate us. In a, in a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, a, a pastor named John Mark Comer, he said so many Americans, they wake up and the first thing they do is check their phones. They check, they read their emails. 
They look at their, the Facebook notifications that they missed that night or the, the Instagram notifications that they missed that night because their phones are right next to their head all night long. And he said, we wake up with noise. And then before they go to bed, they see, what emails did I get? What, what text messages did I get? What Facebook message happened? And so we go to bed with noise, and we wake up with noise, and the average person spends roughly three to four hours on their phone. Stoplights, stop signs, putting their kids to bed. We're still looking at our phones. We live in a world of noise. And in order to hear the Lord's voice in and out of the darkness, we need to embrace a more silent lifestyle, myself included. We need to embrace a more silent lifestyle. Warren Wiersbe's words on this bring some conviction. This is how he perceives what God is saying. My still small voice brings the word to the listening ear and heart. Yes, there's a time and a place for the wind, the earthquake, and the fire, but most of the time I speak to people in tones of gentle love and quiet persuasion. He was only reminding Elijah that he uses many different tools to accomplish his work. God's word comes down like the gentle shower that refreshes, cleanses, and produces. And whether we think that, that this is the only place of God's silent low whisper in Scripture or not, we're wrong. Because in Deuteronomy 32.2 and Isaiah 55.10, we see that God's word is gentle and comes down small and slow and low. And if we have so much inner and outer noise, we're going to miss it. We're going to miss it. It's just like that moment with the cheese, right? I wasn't anticipating God to speak to me about my life while my daughter was holding on to cheese. But I heard the conviction in that moment. I know that there's been many times where I've missed his small voice. But my friends, it's important that we get silent. Take time to be still, silent, and set to hear his still, small voice. Take time to be still, silent, and set to hear his still, small voice. The fifth pathway is the pathway of place. Recognize the Lord meets us where we are and directs us to where we need to be. Recognize the Lord meets us where we are and directs us to where we need to be. In 19, 14 through 18, the word of the Lord says this. He said, I have been very jealous. This is Elijah replying to the Lord's question again. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nishmi, Nimshi, who shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel Meloah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. What I love about this passage that we have to slow down and recognize is that even after God has spoke to him in the low, small whisper, he gives the same exact whiny statement to God. 
Now you might be like, man, Elijah, God just did some crazy stuff, wind, earthquakes, fire, you know, and, and here he comes and speaks to you in a low, small voice, and 